This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of the Socialism 2022 program. You can hear more recorded sessions from the conference by subscribing to the Socialism Conference podcast feed. Many video recordings are also available at socialismconference.org. If you enjoy these recordings, keep an eye on socialismconference.org for updates about the next Socialism Conference and how you can participate. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Turning the Tide Against Endless War. This is a session brought to you by We Are Dissenters. And for those of you who are from out of town or not familiar, Dissenters is a um, Black and Indigenous, people of color-led, youth-led movement attempting to restore the right to our resources and ending uh, this never-ending investment in the death machine that we witness year after year. And so really today we're going to be focusing on looking at how um, our amazing youth organizers here are operating in solidarity with everyday people impacted by U.S. wars and militarism. We're going to be asking what it looks like for young people in the United States to be in solidarity with anti-militarist liberation struggles across the globe. Uh, We really emphasize being rooted in our shared principles of self-determination and solidarity with everyday people and liberation movements. So dissenters youth are organizing grassroots campaigns against war profiteers at home and building international solidarity with our anti-militarist comrades abroad. So this panel today is going to be featuring um, our dissenters organizers who are based in Chicago as well as across the country. And we're going to be discussing exactly what anti-militarist youth organizing looks like according to our model and our vision and uh, our approach is to building a movement of young people to turn the tide against endless war. And so uh, we're going to have everybody, uh, I'm sorry, my name is Jaira. <laughs> I usually hear pronouns um, from Boston, Massachusetts, and I joined the centers, I think, about a year and a half ago. Um, I saw on Twitter a, uh, a tweet about their anti-militarist 101 organizing, and while I had dabbled in a little bit of it throughout my life, I had never really found a place that I could actually locate um, my understanding of war and my understanding of solidarity, as well as what it meant for me to show up in community with other young people of color who often have little to no presence in the anti-war uh, movement. And so um, it was really important for me to, to continue to understand and learn exactly what the centers was working towards. And as I did, I, I found a political home that I feel super committed to and um, that I hope you all uh, learn to, to, to also see the same kind of power that I witnessed. And so, um, yeah, we're going to start with Josue, who's going to tell us a little bit more about how he came to dissenters and um, what, what drew him to this work. Right. Hey, everybody. Uh, my name is Josue. Um, so first and foremost, I'm the son of Guatemalan immigrants. Um, spent the last five years in Chicago. And um, from my time here, I got involved in student organizing, 
um, whether it be working towards pushing for cultural centers in my school or a race and ethnic studies department, fighting against the huge private police department that they have, and also working um, for some immigrant rights organizations. I realized that this was the type of work I wanted to do, right? Um, and so I heard about the centers uh, through a couple of different people, social media, uh, specifically uh, one person, uh, Alex, who I knew through uh, my work. Uh, getting involved at my school against um, University of Chicago Police Department, um, and Alex is the co-director of organizing here at the center. So I was very interested in getting involved. Um, so I went to the very first center DNA training, um, which really resonated with me uh, for a couple reasons. So uh, personally, my life is a culmination of US intervention, uh, stripping away agency from my ancestors' communities in Guatemala. Um, so for that reason, uh, it really pushed both my parents to come to this country. Uh, even recently, I learned uh, that my dad was being approached by people in the army who at the time were, and still are, uh, currently uh, enacting violence throughout, throughout uh, many different indigenous communities in Guatemala. And so that was really um, his like final push to leave Guatemala and come to the United States. So. Um, War and U.S. intervention has really played a huge part in my life. Um, and so uh, by going to the Dissenters DNA training, I really found a place that um, really cultivated a community that was really dedicated to um, working against war. Uh, and war specifically, anti-military work, uh, is beautiful to me because it's an intersection of abolition, international solidarity work, environmental justice, and so many more of our collective struggles. And so. Uh, personally, I found the perfect community to dismantle a system of oppression and uh, build towards a better war, uh, world without war. Um, I couldn't be happier to be here. Hi, everyone. My name is Maya. I'm from Houston, Texas, and I'm from a city uh, that is heavily surveilled and policed. And I started to wonder and believe in the core of my being that I deserve better than this, right? That my people deserve better than militarized police, than carcerality and violence. And I came to Northwestern and got involved in police abolitionist organizing on campus. And I was quickly enveloped in a community of, of black organizers who imagined Northwestern in the city of Evanston um, as something beyond policing, right, and working collectively together to realize that on campus and in the city. Um, for me, abolition and anti-militarism is a loving ethic, um, a humanizing kind of love, right, that uses our imagination to dream beyond policing and militarism. And I was encouraged by two of my mentors actually to apply for the Dissenters Demilitarized Fellowship in 2021. Um, amazing experience. Um, and I was part of a fiercely determined cohort, which she has right here, and other student organizers. And learning and building our centers chapters alongside them was so powerful because it allowed me to understand that abolitionist, anti-militarist, and anti-imperialist organizing is rooted in the community. And sometimes it's easy to fall back on these feelings of of apathy and hopelessness, right? When I look at this Goliath that we're up against at Northwestern, you know, a multi-billion dollar endowment, um, an unlimited administration, 
an institution that is quite literally steeped in settler colonial and anti-black violence. And I am nourished when I remember that for me, power building and community building are one and the same and they're intertwined with each other. And I try to carry this idea of community building and radical imagination forward with me throughout my journey um, as a student of abolition and anti-militarism. And I'm really grateful for being a part of this dissenters you know try fellowship last year so I could really delve into into my politics that way. Hey y'all. Um, my name is Inga Kia. Uh, you can also call me Kia like the car. Um, and I'm from, born and raised in Philly, um, but I'm based in D.C. right now. Um, my roots, my family roots and practices are heavily grounded within the Guinean tradition of, res of resistance. Um, so that's grassroots organizing and that's arts resistance, particularly my parents, um, against the French colonial regime, today against neocolonialism and imperialism. Um, and so that's like my foundation. Um, and I had been doing a lot of organizing, but when I came to DC, I started to become really disillusioned from the organizing scene because in DC, a lot of it is heavily grounded within electoral politics and this idea that when you work with and within that system um, that you can achieve change. Um, and I remember in one of my first classes in undergrad, um, one of my professors asked, you know, what is poli what's politics, right? And everyone was basically saying, uh, what what we think of as organizing like as like what politics is supposed to do or what electoral politics is supposed to do so they were saying like it's community it's participating it's like everyone coming together to make change and like all this stuff every single time someone said something like that my professor was like nope 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 and then and then he was like politics is about power and it's about winning and i was like I don't want to do that. Like, I don't want to participate in that. I don't want to build in that, right? Like, if I'm winning, I'm winning with everyone, and all of our interests are going to be um, fulfilled. So, um, I was like, yeah, no, no way. Like, I don't want to do this. Um, and all the organizations that I was interested in, um, they they existed, <laughs> but they. <laughs> They were decentralized and there was work but there was no community um and there was no healing there was no joy and all of the momentum was uh like solely based in something that was reactionary mm -hmm. and i was like i don't want the only time we come together to i don't want that moment to be grounded in trauma and, and anger and frustration that is rightful um and so i was like what movement can I be a part of that actually um, is grounded in healing and joy and centers that and is building, like continuously building based in this. Um, and around that time, one of my friends, uh, uh, Abigail, went to the initial dissenters launch in 2020, um, came back and was like, Kia, I've got something to tell you. I got something to tell you. <laughs> and I was like, okay. 
and uh, we go through this like it's like how many slides like 50 plus slides of just <laughs> what dissenters was about and um, anti-militarist organizing and I was like this is something that I want to do and what I love about dissenters is that you know like there's principle there's structure um, and we center joy we center healing and it's like Maya was saying reimagining um, and so one of the pillars of anti-militarist organizing is like this interconnected message, right? Like recognizing that the settler like colonial project, which is the United States, it relies on war and militarism mm -hmm. um, for its survival. Mm -hmm. And it's built on more war militarism, right? Like this war militarism was used to enslave um, and commit genocide against Africans, right? To commit genocide and to displace um, indigenous people uh, to expand its colonial empire to like uh, and to maintain this this structure um, and so it's really deeply entrenched in every single aspect of our lives um, and a lot of the times we think of war as something that is distant um, something that is isolated and we think of it as a very particular kind of violence um, that has nothing to do with us right and this violence a lot of the time is glamorized by the media um, and popularized in a very specific like as a very specific image um, and so recognizing that this violence is all around us and that it manifests in carceral systems it manifests itself in the imminent climate crisis that it manifests itself through policing um, and through our schools as students and people of color as black people like um, so, yeah, uh, just recognizing that war and militarism is a, a deep part of our everyday lives and that this violence is the pillar of war and militarism and how do we resist against that. So, yeah. Hi everyone, I'm Ari. I'm an organizer with Napopu'e, Hawaii Dissenter which I co-founded last October with my comrade Punhele, who is a member of the Center's Inaugural Demilitarization Fellowship, along with Maya and Kira. Anti-militarism and anti-imperialism is a fundamental part of my life because military imperialism has devastated my entire life and my family's life for generations. I am Indigenous Mon and Daichu Chinese, born and raised in Thailand. And I am displaced to Hawaii because of U.S. imperialism in Asia. And I think about this a lot, what the intersections are, because I am part of an organization that uh, is majority Kanaka Maui Native Hawaiian, and I'm the only non-Native Hawaiian member of um, And I think a lot about what that means. So Hawaii is one of the most densely militarized regions under U.S. control and in Oahu, the most densely populated island where I live, uh, the military controls a third of all the land. Across the archipelago, there are combined armed services that have 21 installations, 26 housing complexes, eight training areas, and 19 miscellaneous bases and training stations. And to understand this, we actually have to look back at 1893, where the U.S. troops, specifically the Marines, intervened to support the white settler coup um, that was actually enacted by the sugar plantation oligarchs. 
uh, again through Okolani, the democratically elected head of the Hawaiian nation. So sit with that for a moment. The, the plantation system was transported to Hawaii, um, modeled after the US South where black people were enslaved. Um, this is a system to practice capitalism and to forcibly open up the gates to expand and create new capitalist markets in Asia. The US imperialists explicitly state that they are annex, like have annexed Hawaii to forcibly open up capitalist markets in Asia. So the fact that the Hawaii is still occupied, is still under heavy militarization, that our water is being poisoned by the US military, is to enact and to expand US imperialism to open up capitalist markets in Asia. And it's displaced people like me to, to Hawaii, right? And and makes me complicit also in um, settler colonialism in ways that I did not consent to. But it also makes ha Hawaii complicit in US imperialism against Asia. Empire makes us complicit in violence against one another. And it is our duty to fight to win because we deserve freedom for each other. We deserve collective liberation for each other. And so we refuse the way that empire segments our struggles, and we must fight together to win. Okay, so I think we can all go home now, because like everything in a nutshell, the whole reason we're here. And I really want to emphasize that um, everybody spoke so much about how militarism and empire affects us as individuals intimately, and I think that is a core of what makes uh, dissenters organizers so fierce. I think we all very deeply feel in our day-to-day -day lives the impact of this, whether we're first generation or whether we're a part of the, the kind of settler colonial paradigm in one way or another. We are taking responsibility for the ways that we are complicit and also the ways that we can rescue ourselves from this forced victimization. And in doing that, there's it's very clear that amongst everyone that there's such a deep commitment to community and to revitalizing, um, as Maya said, this ethic of love. And so I would love to hear more specifically about how in your local context, um, in the places that you all call home that you're all fighting for, what exactly does it look like to to put into action these ethics and this anti-militarist work? Awesome. So, um, since the year 2000, the Boeing headquarters have been in Chicago. Um, the contract passed directly through the mayor's office, um, and it plays Boeing, who's the second largest defense contractor in the world, um, right at the heart of Chicago. So, uh, in the last week of May of 2021, there was a national call to action after 248 Palestinians were killed in Gaza uh, at the hands of the Israeli apartheid uh, system. And so, centers uh, led a blockade action and a banner drop outside of civilian headquarters uh, after it had, had, it had uh, authorized, the U.S. had authorized a $735 million arms deal to Israel. And so, um, this, I would say, was the foundation, the beginning of what we now call, call the Boeing Arms Genocide Campaign. Mm -hmm. And so, um, Boeing itself brings death and destruction to different corners of the planet, including Palestine, Yemen, Kashmir, on the U.S.-Mexico border, and um, the list continues on into our own communities and receiving uh, military-grade weapons um, that are used to 
uh, surveil and police our very own communities here. So um, at this time, in, in, in the 20-year contract that existed with Boeing, 21-year contract that existed with Boeing, $60 million um, were taken from Chicago taxpayers and were given to the Boeing headquarters as tax reimbursements, right? So this is taking money that could be going towards funding schools, healthcare, uh, keeping mental health institutions that were closed in that same time period, um, but instead were given to the hands of war profiteers. So starting last summer, um, after um, this uh, initial action, um, a group of us, you know, got together and decided, you know, we, we could let things end at that one action, but we decided, no, we are going to actively fight against Boeing here in our own city. Um, and so uh, we, we got together and our first big event was just a teach-in in general, just to talk about all the atrocities that Boeing does. Um, and alongside it, we released a petition demanding the city not renew the contract um, with Boeing, which was set to end in 2020. Um, this was a beautiful space for learning and building community. We collectively worked on a banner that we would use down the road. Um, and it was the start of uh, one of the greatest things I've ever been involved with, which um, had the goal to kick Boeing out of the city of Chicago. So um, during this time, we began researching the contract itself and looking into the stipulations for Boeing to receive their tax credits. We met with elected officials. We submitted countless FOIA requests. Um, essentially just trying to cause a commotion, right, and um, better understand and learn um, what we could do to push back against this contract and make sure that it wasn't renewed, that a new one wasn't passed. And um, so we continued into the year, we canvassed around the city, we held community art builds and teach-ins about Boeing and our demands. And thankfully, in April of this year, we were able to announce that our fight against the Boeing headquarters here in Chicago was officially over. anymore. 
uh, our demand, which was to take going out of the city, uh, was completed, right? That was a moment for celebration and to uplift the work that we had done and um, to try and educate our communities about what Boeing really does. And so uh, we took the time to uh, have, we had a little garden with some seeds um, and we gave people the opportunity to plant seeds and along with those seeds write down what exactly a world without war would look like. And, you know, we saw countless answers from just peace to healthcare to food security, um, community, you know, we saw things like open borders, the freedom to travel, the freedom to, you know, get to know our neighbors without any risk. And so, um, you know, it was really a beautiful space because um, we really just finally got to celebrate a win that, um, you know, took a while to, to work towards. Um, and so, you know, our work isn't over. You know, we, we met our first demands and uh, I guess a little bit later we can tell you about what we're up to now. Disrupted a lot of campus tours, 
And we dropped five banners demanding that Northwestern divest from more and invest in life affirming institutions, right? And Minnesota State is a really good deal at Northwestern. There's so many tours going on. There's all these first years walking around, looking at the campus. You know, this is something that Northwestern takes pride in. And they also take pride in their their blood money, right? They take pride in the fact that we still have Northwestern's roof on campus, terrorizing black students and every civilian, right? So we wanted to spotlight that and stigmatize that. Um, so I'm sure as you all know, there is a stark connection between war profiteering companies and university research. And for Northwestern, working with Boeing, having Boeing teach classes, having Boeing dollars construct literal buildings is something to take pride in. Um, so with NUSJP, any dissenters have been digging into that and exposing those connections. Um, something that we've also been really excited to research and dig into is demystifying um, the board of trustees because they have are in charge of this multi-billion dollar endowment. They have the power to abolish university police and divest from war fueling companies, and they don't. Um, and so something that's on the horizon for us is, is demystifying this, right? And exposing how they continue to fuel war abroad and here. So they unionized in 2020, but because of AU's like union busting, like tactics and uh, uh, dodging the bargaining table, they basically implemented a new movement that students were a part of that we helped support, um, and that we're really trying to protect right now. So um, we basically um, helped to uh, we joined with adjunct professors, grad student employees, advisors support staff, um, that includes dining and cleaning staff, um, and other students who uh, recognize that working conditions uh, are connected uh, to learning conditions, and also that the people that are supposed to be supporting us should have a livable wage, um, should have affordable health care, better working conditions, and sufficient funding for research and projects that we actually want to be uh, a part of and actually want to implement and not the program implemented by our institutions that are deeply um, militarist. So AU basically claims that they didn't have the funds um, to implement any of these, uh, like this new way forward, um, but our president got a $186,000 uh, bonus. Uh, they raised $300 million um, from fundraising around this campaign that basically is prompting students to work within the government um, and increase tuition by 5%. So the question was, where is that money going? It's not into us. Um, and how are we going to bring those resources back into um, us? Uh, so uh, there were protests, there, was, there were rallies um, all throughout the, su the summer. Um, and like, there's a lot of momentum gained uh, over the past couple of months, there's a five-day strike where they were knocking down uh, Sylvia Burwell, our president's door. Um, 
and finally that work is over because AU reached an agreement, uh, came to the bargaining table, some of them, um, and uh, now like full-time employees, student employees are actually getting some of those resources back, but now the work is to protect that and to ensure that that agreement doesn't just fall or disappear, which is something that AU does all the time um, or stall. Um, so that's what we're working towards right now. Uh, but um, the campaign that we started, uh, AU Dissenter for themselves, um, was this campaign against Westbush, who's the former CEO of Northrop Grumman. Uh, Northrop Grumman is the third largest weapons manufacturing uh, company in the country. Um, so they build things like F-16 jets that are used in occupied Palestine by the settler colonial regime, radar systems that are used to track people on the border, the U.S.-Mexico border, and all over the world. Um, and when we think about someone like that being on the board of trustees, I know Maya was talking a little bit about demystifying that. Um, what we don't recognize is like the fact that the board of trustees is not only a very important and crucial position, that they're making like all of these decisions, it's also incredibly lucrative. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about where's that money going, where's that money going, um, it's going to line their pockets, right? So when you have someone who has fealty or some allegiance to um, war profits, like to war making um, and destruction, uh, and you invite them to sit on the board of trustees, which are determining where our money goes, how that money's used, and what programs to implement in order to uh, continue getting donations and to, to create relationships with specific donors. Um, they're, they're basically building those relationships in order to build connections uh, uh, to get like money from these fields, right? So when they want the attention of war-making institutions, when they want that blood money, they're gonna go and they're gonna find someone who used to work within that realm in order to like get to support their interests so that they can put money into our institution. So we're use, we're not even using we're not using that blood money, they're lining their pockets with that blood money. Um, and we don't even want that blood money to begin with, right? So once they get the attention like from these uh, orgs, from this field, from like whatever. Then they're implementing programming to maintain those interests. So now all of the campaigns that our institution is creating is not for students. It's at the expense of students and it's at the expense of people all over the world. And that's what the Board of Trustees is doing. Um, it's really important that we, we resist against that, make sure that the people on our Board of Trustees are representing our interests and that they're not bringing more uh, military recruiters onto our campus, um, that they're not bringing more police recruiters onto our campus because they're getting money from these institutions, or that they're not, you know, getting grants from the DHS um, for student research that's then going to be used by the DHS to create more programming that's going to destroy populations all over the world um, and domestically, right? So, so. Um, it's important to continue resisting against that, and that's what um, the Aegis Center is, is working towards right now. Woo!
continue to fight to shut down the Red Hill fuel tanks. Uh, so Kapukaki or Red Hill uh, is the U.S. Navy's massive underground fuel tank complex that was secretly built during World War II. And each, to give you a clear picture of what we're facing, each of the 20 tanks holds measures up to 100 feet in diameter by 250 feet in height and has the capacity to hold 2.5 million gallons. And all these tanks have leaked, the most recent of which uh, was just last year. In November, there's a spill of 14,000 gallons of fuel. And this is part of a long history of the tanks actually having spilled the moment they were built. The, there was also a huge spill back in 2014 that was 27 gallons of jet fuel. And although environmental groups and the Board of Water Supply in Oahu have demanded that tanks either be retrofitted to meet current environmental safety standards or be decommissioned, the Navy and the Environmental Protection Agency have, have resisted. And they use the excuse that what if Russia invades? What if China invades? We we see this excuse over and over again, right? It's always this this other enemy when actually we see and are committed to solidarity with, with folks um, both in 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 China and in Russia who are fighting anti-imperialism there too. And they are our comrades and they are kin. We, we refuse this villainization of that is just pushed by by the U.S. military and U.S. empire. Uh, this is as I'm speaking now. Um, Jackson is heavy on my mind. Standing Rock is heavy on my mind. Monarchia is heavy on my mind. All these struggles uh, to protect our water against militarism is heavy on our mind. We're facing a global water crisis, and I I am very afraid, but also I am really grateful that we're all here together, and we'd love to connect with folks who are also fighting to protect our water. So to continue, I want to note that. Hawaii is an archipelago. We're, we're actually the most isolated archipelago in the world, and people are still continuing to travel to Hawaii, to treat Hawaii as a tourist destination. Even self-proclaimed abolitionists or leftists um, are coming to Hawaii, are saying, well, it, I, I'm one of the good ones. The problem is there are hundreds of thousands of other people who insist that they're one of the good ones, but still continue to treat Hawaii as just a tropical paradise to extract from and, and to play out their, their empty settler fantasies. <laughs> and at this very moment, people are still being poisoned by the water. The, the aquifer that had actually been contaminated by the, the Red Hill spill provides water for at least a quarter of the island. And so the fuel contamination spreads. If this continues, the whole island may become unlivable. We may lose Oahu because of, of this water, um, of this fuel spill. And we may lose the whole island because people 
still think they're exceptional. People still think that they are cannot be complicit in empire because of empty individualistic excuses. And this, these kind of excuses people come up with are only born out of a culture that is deeply capitalist and selfish. This, this is not a natural thing for people to still be making excuses to come to an island that is being poisoned, where people are, are dying. And that's what we're up against. And so I, I say this not to be all doom and gloom, but this is, this, I think that too much uh, people in Hawaii or people in these other places that are rendered tropical paradises are forced to actually soften our rhetoric to try to explain to people why it's not okay to have to violence against our people in our land. And we're, we're actually fighting because we love our people and we love our what sustains us and we're fighting for, for life. And so I'm really grateful we're here today. Um, and although uh, comrades um, in, in Jackson, for instance, are not necessarily here um, because they're, they're fighting for water um, amid their own crisis right now, I really hope that we can join together uh, in this fight. I also want to give some context to that, you know, where Kapukaki is um, in Halaba um, is actually where the the new super jail um, that is being proposed. And so what happened in the past year as our chapter was, um, before our chapter started, was that a six-year-old boy, I remember Saikap, um, was murdered by Honolulu police. Uh, I remember is Chuchis uh, from the Federated States of Micronesia, and his family was displaced to Hawaii because of U.S. nuclear programs that and the the COPA, like the Compact Free Association Agreement. And I want us to think about what this means for someone to be displaced um, from their homeland and then made. Um, complicit in this project of settler colonialism in other indigenous people's homeland and then to be shot by police, um, a police force that um, is modeled after uh, slave catchers in the U.S. South, where the plantation model uh, that created the U.S. sugar oligarchy in Hawaii was modeled after. So all these critical connections are really laid there in Hawaii. And what, what people only see uh, a tropical paradise, we see the empire about to erupt. And so these are the conditions we're organizing in, and I want us to move from there. I think it's super important to highlight um, that everyone named the way that's site-specific organizing and actions really animates and brings to life and provides a space to, to, to shift the image and to shift, um, to be able to promote our narrative. Because I think, uh, like Kia said earlier, there's an image and an idea around war that we've been heavily, or I should say that has been pushed on us year after year. And a lot of what all the panelists have mentioned is that there really is no way to continue to um, talk lightly or move around this topic lightly, we have to be deeply stigmatizing and making it unacceptable 
that children, that babies, that innocent people are walking around in the streets and then getting, you know, their heads blown off by these weapon profiteers who are all chatting together and building relationships together over dinners in these universities um, where, you know, you're paying hundreds and thousands of dollars for an education and now we're all facing these series of crises all at once. Um, so on that note, um, I'm curious to know how all of you envision uh, knowing that dissenters especially is interested in, in in projecting our narrative of the new world that we want to see built, what is that vision that you're all holding and what are some of the uh, kind of critical action steps that you're going to be taking to organize in your communities and spaces so that the dissenters way is the way moving forward? Yeah, of course. So, um, you know, uh, we were coming off of the big win, right, and um, we were kind of faced with a choice, right? Um, because you know, you know, Boeing doesn't sleep. Um, right now, war doesn't end, um, and you know these corporations don't stop. And so we decided we wouldn't stop either, right? Because uh, coming off of our fresh win, we were building power through our win. Um, so why would we, you know, pump the brakes when we know that Boeing isn't doing that either? So um, as Chicago stopped funding genocide, uh, Illinois stepped up to the plate to help Boeing build a drone manufacturing plant in Middle America Airport in Western Illinois. So the Boeing Arms Genocide Campaign is taking the energy that we got from our victories against Boeing here in Chicago and shifting our efforts elsewhere. So um, as we continue to push for uh, a world without war, we officially launched our new campaign and its petition this past month. And we're demanding that Governor Pritzker and the state of Illinois stop tax credits and cut all ties with the war industry. Um, so this uh, manufacturing plant is uh, the, the, I don't know, the, the check, the bill, uh, is slated to be $200 million towards war, towards expanding war, towards expanding U.S. intervention. And uh, part of that money is coming from the state of Illinois through edge tax credits that, um, and that is what our campaign is focusing on. And so uh, I hope you'll take the time to follow us on socials, because like I said, this campaign, or I guess the second campaign, um, this newfound campaign, uh, just started this past month. Um, and so uh, I hope you'll take the time to read our petition, sign our petition, um, and join us in the fight, because um, if anything, our campaign here in Chicago has really showed us that if we build together, uh, we can get a lot done and we shouldn't hesitate to stand up against these corporations, these war profiteers, and these governments. Um, because, you know, they, they uh, present themselves as these huge beings, right? And they are. Um, but we're just as powerful. We're more powerful when we stand together. Um, and so uh, the future for me and the future for everyone else in our campaign is to keep fighting continue connecting with people locally and across the world, uh, including with these amazing people here beside me, um, and just, you know, be ready to all collectively work towards um, a better world. Building with engineering buildings 
find it in Bill, by Bowen, or telling a story, you know, by having little memorials dedicated to Northwestern students who have fought in the Imperial Wars on campus. Oh, I need to speak louder. Mike, closer. Okay, thank you. Um, yeah, they're telling a story um, by, you know, calling black organizers terrorists, right, when we rush the field, right? They're telling a story in this. And they're also telling a story in the Board of Trustees, right? It's deliberate that we don't know who's up the head of the Board of Trustees, right? It's deliberate that we don't know when they meet. You know, they have cops lined up whenever they have their weekly, their monthly meetings, right? And the Board of Trustees not only um, is in charge of the endowment, set, like is in charge of people's tuition money, um, they also have literal former CEOs of building the Lockheed Martin, right? And Northwestern dissenters want to tell a different story, right? Um, we want to tell a story about community love. And what can we create in a world without policing, that world without empire and borders? And something that we are going to continue to be pushing into is tapping in with NUSJP more because Northwestern is an extremely Zionist institution. Um, people frequently have study abroad trips and birthright trips to occupy Palestine. Northwestern is bolstering Israel's ever-colonial violence every day, right? And we want to continue to not only demystify the Board of Trustees, but also stigmatize the way that Northwestern is harming its Palestinian students and bolstering and uplifting settler-colonial violence. Um, something on the horizon for me that I'm really excited um, to continue digging into um, so this summer, I had a really transformative and beautiful um, experience teaching um, and learning alongside young people and every single day, young people on campus, 12 and 13, like Black, South Asian, Latinx, middle schoolers. Um, and continuing this thing about telling stories, it was really invigorating to tell stories and to teach about abolition and world making through writing and music making and art. Um, and my relationship with abolition and anti-militarist organizing shifted because of being in such a nourishing educational space. Um, and I learned that kids are such brilliant practitioners of abolition because they constantly reject this notion of disposability. And they take their minds and imagination seriously in a way that older people don't. Um, they believe their imagination is a serious, tangible tool, and they use it every day to push beyond, right, and to dream themselves into being. Um, and you know, one thing we all know is that you know all manifestations of white supremacy and policing and outsider colonialism strip our communities from their humanity. Um, but it also makes the world very violently anti-child, and that is something that I learned this summer. And we see this carcerality come up and the way our kids are denied their humanity in schools. And I see myself stepping into this educator role to cultivate humanizing educational spaces and honor our young people's intellectual dignity, because um, this current world is not granted that. And one of my kids this summer asked a question, and he was like, you know, are the stories about bad things like the only stories we get to hear about our people? And throughout the summer, the teaching team and I continue to answer his question, and I continue to answer his question, right? Um, in my journey as an educator and as a student of abolition and anti-militarism. And 
I believe in and creating worlds where we enjoy, where our young people can be safe. Um, and I also believe that the way that I find my purpose is weaving the pedagogy and the thinking that I've learned from the centers um, and, and building loving educational spaces. And I, I believe that's one way I can continue to be in this fight um, and this struggle uh, for liberation. I'm really excited to see where this takes me and where this takes any of the centers. So that we are taking and 
uh, all of the things that we learn within the centers, our principles at the centers, and we're ingraining it in every single thing that we do, and through our imagination. Um, I really do believe that through imagination, liberation and joy and love are realized. Um, so through our imagination, how do we, how do we um, create something that takes us away from merely surviving, right? Um, merely fighting for rights, and how do we try and strive for dignity? How do we fight so that we're living in dignity and not in survival, right? Um, so imagination is a really important part of this, a crucial part of it, and it's a spiritual act. Um, it's intangible spiritual act that we want to continue to practice and that we want to continue to build. Um, and it's endless, and that's the most beautiful part of it. And when we come together, all aspects of, of the things that we imagine um, can be can contribute to the world that we want and that we want to build. And that's the goal, um, is to ensure that that doesn't just happen on our campus, but that it, it happens throughout DC, it happens throughout the country, all over the world. Um, so, yeah. Something I've been grappling with for a very long time is how youth activism is co-opted and neoliberalized. I I think that we need to have more direct conversations about how student activism gets funneled into diversity, equity, and inclusion work. We need to have more conversations about how funny would be anti-peerless get funneled into a kind of representation politics that doesn't go anywhere and that is just inspiring to white capitalism. We need to contend with where people are at right now, which is that people are being, being neutralized rather than facing a regrounding politics. I think, you know, with people, young people now more than ever are at a point where we are eager to radicalize, we are eager to organize. And there is a lot of um, political programming that is very misleading, I would say, because there is a kind of organization structure that does not, not actually support youth leadership and mentorship, or rather is about telling young people to be spokespeople <laughs> rather than to learn to organize. And so something that we've been thinking about, right, is we would organize in Red Hill, like we are part of organizing, you know, like the first action at the big state capital demanding that US politicians, you know, actually commit to shutting down Red Hill. But like it can't just be that like we can't hold settler state politicians accountable. They don't care about us. You can't hold people who don't care. You have to actually dismantle and destroy the U.S. settler state. So how do we build power from the ground up? That's something that is the question of the century. And it's something that I don't think any of us can answer individually, but we can take these direct action with each other to work towards a world where that's possible. Right, so there are no direct answers, but there are really ways of asking better questions that actually get to the root of the problem, which is our responsibility as radicals. And so 
what we've been working on in Hawaii Eden Centers is doing political education uh, with with youth who are affected most by militarism, meaning uh, Kanaka Maui, Native Hawaiian youth, and also uh, Southeast Asian youth refugees who've been displaced to Hawaii, uh, Kofa migrants. We've been working with we've been working with an organization of primarily working class Micronesian and Filipino youth who have been making art and and learning about the connections between abolition and and demilitarization in Hawaii. And I think there also is, uh, I think, a segmentation of the struggles for abolition in email. In Hawaii in particular, most people I'm around are for demilitarization, but then suddenly they'll turn around and be like, the cops are our family. <laughs> that, that to me is very bizarre, but it, it comes out of, this is, this kind of thinking only come out of <laughs> like a late stage of capitalism, right? Like I, there's this is not a natural kind of thinking. Like people do not practice this kind of mental gymnastics on their own. Like this is taught and practiced. So where, where do we build um, from the ground of like of recentering political education and also regrounding folks, right? So I think a lot of political education programming I got involved in. As a youth, like I got involved in socialist organizing as a six-year-old, my mom would drive me to places <laughs> where I would do, do socialist programming. But then I would just leave and be like, "Oh, there are all these problems in the world. I'm building an anti-capitalist analysis. But what do I do now? There's no space for me as a six-year-old who's being driven around by my mom to actually build." <laughs> so I, I'm thinking of you know working more with after-school youth programs and but then also understanding that like there is a limitation to what people can do in those kind of programmings right but like how do we build a space where um power is, is co-constructed learning is co-constructed with youth rather than and, and traditional knowledge is actually what's being committed to rather than um <laughs> this 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 model of saying we're supporting youth activism, but actually just telling youth what to do with these folks people, I, I think is something that we're contending with. But yeah, that's the vision I have right now for Hawaii dissenters that we need, we need to build uh, critical connections over critical mass, as Gracie Fox adds. And over the past year also, we've, um, and most recently uh, through a panel uh, that the centers just co-sponsored. We've been building with folks in Guahan, uh, in Puerto Rico, and hopefully in Okinawa, hopefully in Jackson, hopefully like across the world who are fighting uh, to protect our water against U.S. militarism. Incredible, incredible. And everything Ari just said, um, I think, is also a great segue into talking a little bit more about the centers as an organization and how we hope to do that work of, as Ari said, building critical connections over critical mass and also including uh, the communities that we hope to be in solidarity with, because that is a core component of, of our mission. And so we do have an international solidarity committee that was formed um, a little bit ago, and we are frequently in conversation about what it actually looks like to practice our ethics and our principles uh, when we know that attempts at building international solidarity can easily go awry or sometimes are not the priority uh, of organizations that identify as internationalists. 
Uh, so we did do uh, a few of us did a delegation to Cuba where we were a part of a massive coalition of organizations that were largely youth-centered. And um, within that experience, we were really able to start to to sharpen our analysis, to think more critically about where we position ourselves and what what is what exactly it is that we're working towards and how we hope to both distinguish ourselves and also elevate and and continue to um, have these conversations or as Ari was saying, ask these questions that we need to start expanding and opening up if we're hoping to cultivate you know, a base of youth that, that can speak, that can be, that are receiving a political education that is truly grounding them and that is able to be replicated across campuses. Um, and so I, I guess I wanna leave you all with a couple of really clear pointers, at least that I took from everyone, um, which is to investigate your space, whether it's a campus, the university you're teaching at, your workplace, your community, um, look at these connections between how money is moving, how capital is moving around you and into the hands of weapons profiteers in order to disrupt that flow. Um, reinvest in the communities that have been impacted firsthand by imperialism, empire, and militarism because they're here and they're around you. They're the immigrants that are going unseen that are constantly at risk. They are the young people that are being marginalized time and time again by various systems. Um, tell your friends to stop going to Hawaii <laughs> and really like start that Continue to stigmatize war. Don't, in your day-to-day -day interactions and conversations, wherever you're seeing it, do not allow war to be the noise in the background because it is not. It's something we're deeply responsible for uh, exporting. Um, love the kids in your life and love the kid in yourself because we clearly all have so much more healing to do and to promote in our young people radicalize and push the line forward again don't let these like people control the narrative as we were talking about earlier we have to continue to to radicalize around us um dismantle and destroy the u.s settler state <laughs> Um, and yeah, recenter political education. I think we all, I think all of us have a deep responsibility to ourselves and to each other to continue to push ourselves to transform and to change with what we learn and to ground the learnings that we're acquiring. Don't let them be stuck in your head. Do that through art, do that through writing, do that through more conversation, but really recenter political education um, from an internationalist lens, from a black internationalist lens. And we also produced a series not too long ago, the International Solidarity Committee on Black Internationalism. So uh, resources are out there and you're welcome to connect with us on social media. DM us through Instagram if you're interested in starting a chapter on campus or in your community. Um, and and yeah, as Maya was saying, stay plugged in, look out for how you can support us around you because we're here and we're ready to end war. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.